Chapter One of A Mind That Found Itself by Clifford Whittingham Beers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Daly. One. This story is derived from as human a document as ever existed, and because of its uncommon nature, perhaps no one thing contributes so much to its value as its authenticity. It is an autobiography, and more. In part, it is a biography, for in telling the story of my life, I must relate the history of another self, a self which was dominant from my twenty-fourth to my twenty-sixth year. During that period, I was unlike what I had been, or what I have been since. The biographical part of my autobiography might be called the history of a mental civil war, which I fought single-handed on a battlefield that lay within the compass of my skull. An army of unreason, composed of the cunning and treacherous thoughts of an unfair foe, attacked my bewildered consciousness with cruel persistency, and would have destroyed me, had not a triumphant reason finally interposed a superior strategy that saved me from my unnatural self. I am not telling the story of my life just to write a book. I tell it because it seems my plain duty to do so. A narrow escape from death and a seemingly miraculous return to health after an apparently fatal illness are enough to make a man ask himself for what purpose was my life spared? That question I have asked myself, and this book is, in part, an answer. I was born shortly after sunset, about thirty years ago. My ancestors, natives of England, settled in this country not long after the Mayflower first sailed into Plymouth Harbor, and the blood of these ancestors, by time and the happy union of a northern man and a southern woman, my parents, has perforce been blended into blood truly American. The first years of my life were, in most ways, not unlike those of other American boys, except as a tendency to worry made them so. Though the fact is now difficult for me to believe, I was painfully shy. When first I put on short trousers, I felt the eyes of the world were on me, and to escape them I hid behind convenient pieces of furniture while in the house, and, so I am told, even sidled close to fences when I walked along the street. With my shyness, there was a degree of self-consciousness which put me at a disadvantage in any family or social gathering. I talked little, and was ill at ease when others spoke to me. Like many other sensitive and somewhat introspective children, I passed through a brief period of morbid righteousness. In a game of one old cat, the side on which I played was defeated. On a piece of scantling which lay in the lot where the contest took place, I scratched the score. Afterwards it occurred to me that my inscription was perhaps misleading, and would make my side appear to be the winner. I went back and corrected the ambiguity. On finding in an old tool chest at home a coin or medal, on which there appeared the text, put away the works of darkness, and put on the armor of light, my sense of religious propriety was offended. It seemed a sacrilege to use in this way such a high sentiment, so I destroyed the coin. I early took upon myself, mentally at least, 
many of the cares and worries of those about me. Whether in this I was different from other youngsters who develop a ludicrous though pathetic sense of responsibility for the universe, I do not know. But in my case, the most extreme instance occurred during a business depression, when the family resources were endangered. I began to fear that my father, than whom a more hopeful man never lived, might commit suicide. After all, I am not sure that the other side of my nature, the natural, healthy, boyish side, did not develop equally with these timid and morbid tendencies, which are not so very uncommon in childhood. Certainly the natural boyish side was more in evidence on the surface. I was as good a sport as any of my playfellows in such games as appealed to me, and I went a-fishing when the chance offered. None of my associates thought of me as being shy or morose, but this was because I masked my troubles, though quite unconsciously, under a camouflage of sarcasm and sallies of wit, or at least what seemed to pass for wit among my immature acquaintances. With grown-ups, I was at times inclined to be pert, my degree of impudence depending no doubt upon how ill at ease I was, and how perfectly at ease I wished to appear. Because of the constant need for appearing happier than I really was, I developed a knack for saying things in an amusing, sometimes an epigrammatic way. I recall one remark made long before I could possibly have heard of Malthus, or have understood his theory regarding birth-rate and food supply. Ours being a large family of limited means, and among the five boys of the family unlimited appetites, we often used the cheaper, though equally nutritious, cuts of meat. On one occasion, when the steak was tougher than usual, I epitomized the Malthusian theory by remarking, I believe in fewer children and better beefsteak. One more incident of my boyhood days may assist the reader to make my acquaintance. In my early teens I was, for one year, a member of a boy choir. Barring my voice, I was a good chorister, and, like all good choir boys, I was distinguished by that seraphic passiveness from which a reaction of some kind is to be expected immediately after a service or rehearsal. On one occasion, this reaction in me manifested itself in a fist-fight with a fellow choir-boy. Though I cannot recall the time when I have not relished verbal encounters, physical encounters have never been to my taste, and I did not seek this fight. My assailant really goaded me into it. If the honors were not mine, at least I must have acquitted myself creditably, for an interested passer-by made a remark which I have never forgotten. "'That boy is all right after he gets started,' he said. "'About twelve years later I did get started, "'and could that passer-by have seen me on any one of several occasions, "'he would have had the satisfaction of knowing that his was a prophetic eye. "'At the usual age I entered a public grammar school in New Haven, Connecticut, "'where I graduated in 1891. "'In the fall of that year I entered the high school of the same city.' My school courses were completed with as little trouble as scholastic distinction. I always managed to gain promotion, however, when it was due, and though few of my teachers credited me with real ability, they were always able to detect a certain latent capacity, which they evidently believed would one day develop sufficiently to prevent me from disgracing them. 
Upon entering the high school, I had such ambitions as any schoolboy is apt to have. I wished to secure an election to a given secret society. That gained, I wished to become business manager of a monthly magazine published by that society. In these ambitions I succeeded. For one of my age I had more than an average love of business. Indeed, I deliberately set about learning to play the guitar well enough to become eligible for membership in the banjo club, and this for no more aesthetic purpose than to place myself in line for the position of manager to which I was later elected. In athletics there was but one game, tennis, in which I was actively interested. Its quick give and take suited my temperament, and so fond was I of it, that during one summer I played not fewer than four thousand games. As I had an aptitude for tennis and devoted more time to it than did any of my schoolmates, it was not surprising that I acquired skill enough to win the school championship during my senior year. But that success was not due entirely to my superiority as a player. It was due in part to what I considered unfair treatment, and the fact well illustrates a certain trait of character which has often stood me in good stead. Among the spectators at the final match of the tournament were several girls. These schoolmates, who lived in my neighborhood, had mistaken for snobbishness a certain boyish diffidence for which few people gave me credit. When we passed each other almost daily, this group of girls and I, our mutual sign of recognition was a look in an opposite direction. Now my opponent was well liked by these same girls, and was entitled to their support. Accordingly, they applauded his good plays, which was fair. They did not applaud my good plays, which was also fair. But what was not fair was that they should applaud my bad plays. Their doing so roiled my blood, and thanks to those who would have had me lose, I won. In June 1894, I received a high school diploma. Shortly afterwards, I took the examinations for Yale, and the following September entered the Sheffield Scientific School in a non-technical course. The last week of June, 1894, was an important one in my life. An event then occurred which undoubtedly changed my career completely. It was a direct cause of my mental collapse six years later, and of the distressing and, in some instances, strange and delightful experiences on which this book is based. The event was the illness of an older brother, who, late in June, 1894, was stricken with what was thought to be epilepsy. Few diseases can so disorganize a household and distress its members. My brother had enjoyed perfect health up to the time he was stricken, and as there had never been a suggestion of epilepsy, or any like disease, in either branch of the family, the affliction came as a bolt from a clear sky. Everything possible was done to effect a cure, but without avail. On July 4, 1900, he died, after a six years' illness, two years of which were spent at home, one year in a trip around the world in a sailing vessel, and most of the remainder on a farm near Hartford. The doctors finally decided that a tumor at the base of the brain had caused his malady and his death. As I was in college when my brother was first stricken, I had more time at my disposal than the other members of my family, and for that reason spent much of it with him. Though his attacks during the first year occurred only at night, the fear that they might occur during the day, in public, 
affected my nerves from the beginning. Now, if a brother who had enjoyed perfect health all his life could be stricken with epilepsy, what was to prevent my being similarly afflicted? This was the thought that soon got possession of my mind. The more I considered it and him, the more nervous I became, and the more nervous, the more convinced that my own breakdown was only a matter of time. Doomed to what I then considered a living death, I thought of epilepsy, I dreamed epilepsy, until thousands of times during the six years that this disquieting idea persisted, my overwrought imagination seemed to drag me to the very verge of an attack. Yet at no time during my life have these early fears been realized. For the fourteen months succeeding the time my brother was first stricken, I was greatly harassed with fear. But not until later did my nerves really conquer me. I remember distinctly when the break came. It happened in November 1895, during a recitation in German. That hour in the classroom was one of the most disagreeable I have ever experienced. It seemed as if my nerves had snapped, like so many minute bands of rubber stretched beyond their elastic limit. Had I had the courage to leave the room, I should have done so, but I sat as if paralyzed until the class was dismissed. That term I did not again attend recitations. Continuing my studies at home, I passed satisfactory examinations, which enabled me to resume my place in the classroom the following January. During the remainder of my college years, I seldom entered a recitation room with any other feeling than that of dread, though the absolute assurance that I should not be called upon to recite did somewhat relieve my anxiety in some classes. The professors, whom I had told about my state of health and the cause of it, invariably treated me with consideration. But though I believe they never doubted the genuineness of my excuse, it was easy matter to keep them convinced for almost two-thirds of my college course. My inability to recite was not due usually to any lack of preparation. However well prepared I might be, the moment I was called upon, a mingling of a thousand disconcerting sensations and the distinct thought that at last the dreaded attack was at hand would suddenly intervene and deprive me of all but the power to say, not prepared. Weeks would pass without any other record being placed opposite my name than a zero, or a blank indicating that I had not been called upon at all. Occasionally, however, a professor, in justice to himself and to the other students, would insist that I recite, and at such times I managed to make enough of a recitation to hold my place in the class. When I entered Yale, I had four definite ambitions. First, to secure an election to a coveted secret society. Second, to become one of the editors of the Yale Record, an illustrated humorous bi-weekly. Third, granting that I should succeed in this latter ambition, to convince my associates that I should have the position of business manager, an office which I sought, not for the honor, but because I believed it would enable me to earn an amount of money at least equal to the cost of tuition for my years at Yale. Fourth, and this was my chief ambition, to win my diploma within the prescribed time. These four ambitions I fortunately achieved. A man's college days collectively are usually his happiest. Most of mine were not happy, yet I look back upon them with great satisfaction, for I feel that I was fortunate enough 
to absorb some of that intangible but very real element known as the Yale spirit. This has helped me keep hope alive within me during my most discouraged moments, and has ever since made the accomplishment of my purposes seem easy and sure. End of chapter 1